Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion. Thank you to the students at the Redemption Church for giving me my brand new coffee cup. Today, we are in Isaiah chapter 29. We're going to begin in verse 11. Here's our text. For you, the entire vision will be like the words of a sealed document. God is speaking to Israel here. If it is given to one who can read and he is asked to read it, he will say, I can't read it because it is sealed. And if the document is given to one who cannot read and he's asked to read it, he will say, I can't read. This is reminiscent of, from our perspective, the book of Revelation and the scroll that is sealed and has writing on both sides. This was the title deed for the fate of the earth that could only be opened by Jesus. This is a chapter in Isaiah that is quoted multiple times throughout the New Testament. This, is, uh, this chapter contains words that appear in Romans 9 and 1 Corinthians 1 and the Gospel of Mark and in Matthew chapter 15, which we taught in our previous uh, two series ago. This is an, an epic text, and the opening words are even prophetic of prophecy because they foretell of this scroll with writing on both sides that nobody can read. In John's vision and revelation, there's despair because no one is worthy. There's not a kinsman redeemer, a family redeemer, a guardian redeemer, a goel is the original Hebrew word appearing 150 times throughout the Old Testament about the leveret marriage candidate who is eligible to rescue the bride who is in distress. So this is a scroll it's in your hands, but no one can open it. No one can read it. God is speaking to these people, but they're unable to understand. They think themselves wise, but they have become fools. The Lord said, these people approach me with their speeches to honor me with lip service, yet their hearts are far from me, and human rules direct their worship of me. In Matthew chapter 15, when this passage is quoted, it's Jesus, uh, it's Jesus leveling it against the Pharisees, which I'm sure infuriated them because they knew this passage by heart. They were coming after Jesus and his disciples because they did not observe a tradition, not something that was prescribed by God, not, not something that's found in the law of Moses, but something that they, the Pharisees, added on to the word of God in the Talmud. The modern-day Catholic Church does this. Mormons do this. Jehovah's Witnesses do this. Anybody who adds on to the Word of God does this. Jesus rebuked them for nullifying the command of God for the sake of their traditions. And so when the hand-washing thing became an issue, Jesus quoted this passage. Let's continue. Human rules direct their worship of me. By the way, uh, Protestants, we can be guilty of this too. Okay, we can be guilty of this too. Uh, this is largely lost on Pacific Northwesterners, but in the Deep South, we had this thing called the Worship Wars, where people were being legalistic uh, about the use of hymns in worship, for example. Uh, this weekend at the Redemption Church, by the way, stay tuned, we're going to take a different approach uh, musically to worship. Worshiping the same God, we haven't changed faith systems, but we're going to facilitate worship in a slightly different way that I'm praying God really uses mightily. So ready your heart for that. Therefore, I will again confound these people with wonder after wonder. The wisdom of their wise will vanish, and the perception, uh, uh, the perception of their perceptive will be hidden, meaning those among them who are perceptive will not be able to perceive what's happening. Paul quoted this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. 
This is a passage about those who, even though they think themselves wise, they have many accolades, they have multiple degrees, right? They're unable to see the truth. They're unable to understand what God's actually doing. If they were not so hard of heart, then they would see with their eyes, they would hear with their ears, they would understand with their hearts, they would repent, and then God would show them mercy. But as things stood, and as things today with Israel corporately in large part, Messianic Jews notwithstanding, stand, they are still hard of heart. They still have the patent obvious word of God right before them. They can still see how Yeshua is Messiah, and yet they are hard of heart, and they do not believe. They may give lip service to God, but their hearts are far from Him. Does this describe your worship? Does this text reflect your heart before God? All right, that you're you, you may you may give Jesus lip service. You may say the right things, but your heart is actually incredibly far from him. Woe to those who go to great lengths to hide their plans from the Lord. All right, man, pray a prayer right now if the Lord convicts you for that. They do their works in the dark and say, Who sees us? Who knows us? Whatever's in the dark will be brought to light. You have turned things around as if the potter were the same as the clay. How can what is made say about its maker, he didn't make me? How can what is formed say about the one who formed it, he doesn't understand what he's doing? This comes in Romans 9. This is, this is a text that's quoted in Romans chapter 9. In Paul's brilliant epistle, inspired by the Holy Spirit that describes perfectly the apex upon which the old covenant pivots into the new. That's Jesus. He's describing how God sovereignly chose the descendants of Jacob as heirs to the promise of Abraham. That is God's chosen nation. These are God's chosen people. And part of the birth of the nation of Israel was their slavery in Egypt, how God took a people who were not a people and made them, he says, my people. And he did, in, in so doing, he hardened Pharaoh's heart. In some but not all of the plagues of Egypt, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, not of his own volition, but by God hardening his heart. And Pharaoh had no say in the matter because God is sovereign. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some things for noble use and some for common use? And who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? Who are you, O oh Pharaoh, to object to this? And by the way, we can see in the text very clearly, Pharaoh's heart was already hardened of his own volition anyway. In truth, it was perfectly just. Pharaoh received exactly what he demanded. Let's continue in the text. You have turned things around as if the potter were the same as the clay. That's verse 18. Here's verse 17. Isn't it true that in just a little while, Lebanon will become an orchard and the orchard will seem like a forest? On that day, the deaf will hear the words of a document and out of a deep darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. The humble will have joy after joy in the Lord and the poor people will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. I love this. Um, Typically, stylistically, when um, when our team at Lifeway released uh, really at at, at B and H or at Holman Bible Publishers, when we when we released this Bible translation, the CSB, uh, man, it was really cool. It was really exciting to be in the building, and we talked about this. Uh, in fact, some of the students at the Redemption Church recently brought this up. 
in the original languages of the ancient manuscripts, divine pronouns were not capitalized. It became something that we kind of held on to, and it actually does help give clarity. For example, when he refers to God or his refers to God or him refers to God, those are always capitalized because we're talking about God. And this became uh, a helpful tool. It became a way to honor God in the text. But our conviction in releasing the CSB was to be as true to the ancient manuscripts as absolutely possible. And the ancient manuscripts don't capitalize the divine pronouns. So what's funny is speaking of traditions that we hold on to, this became a tradition that people held on to. And there was some objection even within house. Like, Hang on, wait, wait a minute. Is it right? Is it okay for us to not capitalize the divine pronouns? And we said, well, hey, if we're going to be true to the original manuscripts, this is what we do. However, in this text, there seems to be a bit of an exception because it is very clear. The Holy One of Israel, this can refer only to God. This can also, this also bears obvious prophetic significance as the, the, the Son of God who would be born some seven centuries after the inspiration of this text. For the ruthless one will vanish, the scorner will disappear, and all those who lie in wait with evil intent will be killed. Okay, think back to, to this part of the text, right? Where, you know, who, who sees us? Who knows what we're doing? Right back here in verse 15, like uh, d- uh, those who go to great lengths to hide their plans from the Lord, it's futile. It's not going to work. God knows exactly exactly what you're doing. All those who lie in wait with evil intent will be killed. Those who, with their speech, accuse a person of wrongdoing, okay, who set a trap for the one mediating at the city gate, all right, he's mediating, he's here to make peace, but you've set a trap for him. Without cause, deprive the righteous of justice. Watch out. God's coming for you. God's coming for you. Therefore, the Lord who redeemed Abraham... That he just went, he he just went full Abraham on him. The original Hebrew recipients would have said, "Whoa, okay, I get it. This goes all the way back to the original covenant from whence our nation came in the first place." It says this about the house of Jacob: Jacob will no longer be ashamed, and his face will no longer be pale, as if stricken with horror. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands within his nation, they will honor my name. They will honor the holy one of Jacob and stand in awe of the God of Israel. Those who are confused will gain understanding, and those who grumble will accept instruction. So in the midst of all of these warnings of God's discipline upon Jerusalem, whom we refer to as Ariel, even at the beginning of this text, he, he, you know, in the midst of all these warnings, there's also hope. Amidst all the the warnings of coming discipline, there's also a promise of redemption. And that redemption comes in Jesus and in Jesus alone. This is a very important text in the New Testament. It's quoted multiple times in multiple angles, Matthew and Mark and 1 Corinthians and Romans 9. This is an ancient text inspired by the same God who inspired those books. There's a very clear bridge from the Old Testament context of Isaiah to you right now while you read this. Are you guilty of the same things? Are you making plans that you're hiding from everybody because they're going to be found out? Are you just honoring God with your lips, but your heart is far from him? Would you repent of that this weekend at the Redemption Church? 
Are you also overwhelmed with the discipline of God? Have you been repentant of your sin? You're asking, how long, how long, O Lord? You know that even as God pours out his discipline, he's done this in his Old Testament people, Israel. He does it with his New Testament people today, those who are in Christ. He does relent in his discipline. There is a coming redemption and reconciliation and restoration. Do not let the purpose of this disciplinary season be lost on you. Moreover, do not be overwhelmed or intimidated by the perceived wisdom of the world because the wisdom of the wise is nothing compared to God. They hold the scroll in their hands, but they're unable to understand it or read it. But blessed are those who have the Spirit of God within them, because if you have ears to hear, you can hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Let's tune in tomorrow and let's continue with our study of Isaiah. I'll see you this weekend at the Redemption Church.